Hello everyone, my name is Ahmed Al-Harushi and I will be your host at MASK's latest initiative, the MASK Talk. To introduce myself a bit more, I'm a Moroccan international student studying business analytics at Holt International Business School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The purpose of this talk is to provide our audience with a fun, enriching and educational experience by bringing experts who will provide you with a valuable insight. Today, the episode will evolve around a very demanding topic, visas. So hello Liz, Erica, Nizar, Welcome to the Mask Talks first episode. Um, I'll go first. My name is Erica Dooley. Um, I am born and raised from Minnesota. Um, a lot of my experiences of working in the field of international education have happened in Minnesota, uh, both at Bemidji State University, which is way up north in northern Minnesota, um, as well as Minnesota State University at Mankato, which is the southern part of Minnesota. Um, so definitely seeing the state, and that's where I'm currently at, is Minnesota State University of Mankato, and I am an international student advisor. Super excited to be here today. Awesome. Thank you. What about you, Elizabeth? Well, I'm Elizabeth Lorenz. I was also born and raised in the great state of Minnesota and currently work at Minnesota State University of Mankato as the Assistant Director for International Recruitment and Enrollment. We like long titles in our office, so that's a long one. Um, and I am also a proud alumna of Minnesota State Mankato. I actually graduated there with my bachelor degree, um, and I studied international relations and geography. So when I was a student, I always knew I wanted to work in the international realm, just wasn't really sure which direction. I actually was thinking more government or state department or something at the time. And then my senior year of my bachelor degree, I did an internship with our study abroad office. And that opened the doors to this field of international education, which I had no concept of or no idea it even existed or was a career path. Um, but from there, I got really excited about the opportunity of working with um, international students and exchange programs. And here I am today working with international students and really excited to talk with you guys and being interviewed by international students. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Nope. Yeah, so uh, hello everyone. My name is Nizar. I'm also part of the MASK team with uh, Ahmed. I'm originally from Morocco, uh, from the small city of Ifran. I grew up there and uh, I did my high school there in the American School of Ifran. Then I went to uh, undergrad in, uh, in the US in a university called Clark University in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. I did my, uh, I got my bachelor's there for, in uh, math and physics, and now I'm currently doing my PhD in applied math in uh, Stony Brook University. I've been here for, uh, for five years, and hopefully I'm almost done. Yeah. You know, it's, been, it's been a long journey, so I have a lot of experience, you know, being an international student here in the U.S. for about nine years now. You know, I've been through all the processes multiple times, so I hope that, uh, you know, I could help some of the, some of the younger generation who have many questions regarding visas, regarding uh, you know being an international student in the U.S. I'm uh, hoping to guide them and, and provide them with uh, with the resources they need to, to succeed here in the U.S. So I'm I'm really excited to be part of the of the Mask Talk. Uh, this is our first episode, so we're really happy to have Erica and Elizabeth with us today, and hopefully we can have a, a very informative session for for our audience. Definitely, no, I totally agree, um, especially since. Everyone wants to know more about the visa process because we're coming from Morocco. We don't necessarily know exactly how it goes. And it might seem like a daunting process. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a process that everyone has to go through. And um, the more you have help, the better. And that's why we both 
we brought in Elizabeth and we brought in Erica, who are going to be very helpful and talk about multiple things that are going to be highly valuable and definitely very important to know when you want to study here in the US. So what are the possible student visas? Um, do you guys know which ones are the most popular? What do you guys have worked with? Um, how, how does it work usually? Yes, that's a great question. Um, so there's really two types of student visas um, and they are considered non-immigrant visas, which means if you're coming to study on a non-immigrant immigrant visa, you have no intention to permanently immigrate to the United States. So they are temporary visas. Um, and the two types are F1 and J1 visas. F1 is the most common um, that most students are coming on for degree seeking programs. So they're coming with the intention to earn an associate degree, bachelor degree, master's, PhD, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, J1 is typically for students who are coming on more temporary or short-term programs, such as maybe a one-year exchange program or maybe a language training program. Um, in some cases, for government-sponsored programs, students will come on J visas, mm -hmm. um, but in most cases, degree-seeking students are the F visas. So it doesn't really matter if you're an undergrad or postgraduate. So if you still will go for an F1, not a J1, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. And okay. how do you know which one to go for? How does that process consist of? Does the university usually provide you with the type of visa? How does it usually work? Yeah, good question too. Oftentimes on the application form, when a student is filling out their initial application, whether it's for undergraduate bachelor's degrees or master's or PhD programs, they're going to have to indicate on there if they will be needing a visa to study in the United States. Mm -hmm. And then depending on the type of program that they're applying for and accepted for, that's when the university actually determines which type of visa um, and immigration documents they need to provide for that student. So uh, it can be a little bit different process on different campuses, but almost in all cases, if that student is coming uh, as a self-sponsored degree-seeking student, they will come under the F-1 visa. Okay, interesting. And um, what if a student, for example, wants to do an exchange program somewhere else? Will the visa change? Will the status change? Or is it the same one that consists that, will they, that they'll be using for that specific trip? So just to clarify for if a student did an exchange program, are you thinking something outside of the United States? Like if they did a study abroad program or doing exchange within the U.S.? Um, I'm saying more like, for example, a student in Morocco who wants to do an exchange program in the university in the U.S. Oh, um, I see. For that short term. Yes, yeah. for that short term. Will it be in, on an sure. F or a J1? In that case, it likely would be on a J-1 visa. So yeah. if that student is applying just for temporary study, they're not coming to actually earn any type of degree, mm -hmm. then it would likely be a J-1 visa. Okay, it makes sense. Yeah, the reason why this is important is because I don't know if you guys are aware, but there's a, a rather big university uh, in Morocco. It's called the al University of Ifrah, mm -hmm. and it's like an American university. And I know that we do have you know, some students there um, who are part of our group. And in many cases, they, they do enjoy uh, like to, to do like a semester in the U.S., maybe sometimes even a year in the U.S. So that's why it's important to maybe clarify that in their case, most likely they will be applying for, for a J-1 visa versus a regular F-1 visa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And one thing for those students in particular, any student who is currently studying at a university in Morocco, thinking about an exchange program, I would encourage them to um, talk with 
the, the study abroad office or whichever office manages international exchange programs on their campus mm-hmm. to find out where they might have university partnerships. Um, oftentimes, many universities will have study abroad partners in the U.S. and vice versa. So they're sending students back and forth as part of those exchange programs. Um, and so that can be a really good place to start just to find out a little bit more information, too. Mm-hmm, definitely. And uh, what about the I-20 process to be able to, to, to get those certain visas? Do you know how it goes? Um, is it the similar for an F-1 visa and a J-1? Or are those processes two different things concerning your I-20? Um, Erica, do you want to step in on this one? Otherwise, yeah, I can. <laughs> yeah, I can step in. So yeah, there's um, different documentation for the different types of visas. So an F1 um, degree seeking student would need the form I-20. Um, and then the J1 exchange visitor would need a form called DS 2019. And they serve the same purpose as one of those documents that they would need um, to come into the United States and maintain when they are within the United States. And it basically has their profile on these forms that we are able to print off. Um, And the steps in order to get one, um, step one would be to apply and be admitted into into the university. Mm -hmm. And then step two would be to request either the I-20 or the DS-2019, depending on the visa type. Um, and then from there, they need to go to the U.S. consulate and go for the visa appointment. Um, so those would be the steps. And uh, to receive an I-20, the user, does it come um, through electronic means or does it come printed? So how does that process also work? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, Right now, because of the COVID um, situation that we are currently in, we are able to email out I-20s at this time. So that's been really convenient. So students don't need to pay any shipping for that. Um, I do want to mention that the I-20 does have a fee to it. It's the I-901 CVIS fee, which is currently $350 US dollars. Okay, perfect. So now that we moved on from the I-20 topic, and let's say you finally got your F-1 and you're here in the U.S. Um, so how can you maintain your F-1 status? What can you do as a student? What can you not? Because I know there's a lot of regulations and a lot of students, when they come here to the U.S., they think they have a lot of other possibilities or they think they can work for a lot of hours, but it's very different to be here in the U.S. as a student. So can we maybe delve into that? Yeah, I'll start off by saying a few key things to maintain status is making sure that the U.S. physical address is up to date. So having a location that you call home Mm -hmm. um, away from home is really important. Um, The other piece is making sure that students are enrolling as full-time students. Mm -hmm. And that could look different depending on the degree level, university, Um, For F1 undergraduate students, typically 12 credits is considered full-time. Graduate programs kind of vary. Um, And then as far as work, that's a a topic, you know? (laughs) Um, But yeah, I don't know if anyone has any questions regarding those initial items to maintain status. There's a lot to it. Yeah, there's There's, a lot to it. 
want to go for that, Nizar? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think, first of all, we should probably clarify what, what does it mean to be on an F1 status. Mm-hmm. Um, we can also maybe talk about, because I, I know we get a lot of questions that, you know, if I have a, my visa, you know, what is the purpose of my I-20 or, or vice versa? Mm-hmm. You know, if I have my I-20, what is the purpose of, of having a visa? So maybe we can talk about like being, what, what does it mean to be an F1 student in the, in the U.S.? Making sure that you have all the documentation, your I-20 and your visa are both uh, necessary. Uh, to be in the U.S. and then talk about, you know, what does it mean to be to be an F1 student? So maybe if we can delve into that, that I think that would be very useful. Yeah, definitely. I can jump in here. So for F1 or J1 students, that immigration document that you receive, um, the I-20 for F1 students or DS-2019, uh, oh my goodness, DS-2019. <laughs> I've been talking about the DS-160 a lot lately, which is the application form that students fill out to apply for their visa. So in my head, I was about to say DS-160. Anyway, so the I-20 or the DS-2019 are almost as important as the actual visa in your passport, if not more important. Those, um, what it means to be a student as an F1 or a J1 means that you are here to study. So that is your sole intention. It's not that you're here to work. Um, which is why you need to maintain that status as a student in order to not fall out of status uh, while studying on your F1 or J1 visas. So those documents that you receive are really important because they have the information of your program, the dates that your program length will be, um, that you're eligible to study in the United States. So one of the things that a lot of students might not realize is the length of the F-1 visa does not necessarily matter. Um, It's as long as they're maintaining their F-1 status in the United States and maintaining their I-20, they can actually be in the US on an expired F-1 visa as long as they're maintaining their I-20 status. So that document really becomes very important during their course of study. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point, exactly. And um, so as, as an F1 student, because I know that there is a limited number of hours that you can work, um, do you know exactly um, how, for how many hours you can work per week, either for your campus or for another organization? Yeah, so um, as far as an F1 student, uh, they can, if a student's first semester, for example, let's say is fall 2021, they can start working on campus right away as long as they have the work permit, as long as they have the social security number, they can start working on campus part-time, 20 hours per week um, is our limit on campus. During um, winter break, summer break, students who are working on campus can bump that up. Mm-hmm. There are other types of work authorizations like CPT and OPT, STEM OPT, um, severe economic hardship. There's other off-campus, you know, um, opportunities out there that mm-hmm. have their own specific regulations tied to them. Um, mm-hmm. But to start and just to kind of speak to initial students coming, they can work right away as long as they have all that documentation mm-hmm. lined up. And how do they get their social security number? Is that a process that they personally do or does the school provide them with that guidance? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, I'm so happy to see the, our office kind of revamp the work permit process. It's super uh, student friendly. 
um, in the sense that, yes, the student needs to be applying to different on-campus uh, positions, but once the student has their, their um, excuse me, job offer letter, mm -hmm. then we will sit with them and work with them through that process, um, get them ready to go for the social security number appointment. Um, so yeah, we, we definitely help the students and we'll sit with them through that process so then they don't have any questions mm -hmm. and they're able to start working right away. Perfect. And you actually talked about CPT and OPT. And um, I know that a lot of questions do not know the difference between both of them and they don't know what it, exactly they are. So we could definitely also talk about it. So what is CPT and what is OPT and what really differentiates both of them? Well, let me start off by saying um, those who are listening, <laughs> you, the United States, we have so many acronyms. So um, <laughs> I apologize in advance. I've been saying CPT and OPT, but CPT, um, the long name of it is curricular practical training. Mm -hmm. And a quick way for me to explain that is it's basically an internship. So a student will take an internship course or a practicum course, and they have a job offer off campus, mm -hmm. and they can engage in that as long as they submit all of the documentation that we advisors need to see. And then OPT stands for Optional Practical Training, mm -hmm. um, and that's typically off-campus work once a student has completed their program of study. There's a few different OPT types, but the most common one that we see is post-completion OPT. Mm -hmm. which is after graduation work. Okay. And um, I've heard that you can actually start your OPT even before graduation. Is that true? That is true. That is called pre-completion um, OPT. Mm -hmm. So um, it is an option. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a little bit, it's very similar to post-completion OPT. Mm -hmm. um, there's regulations tied to it. Um, I don't see it too often because any pre-completion OPT that a student engages in, it takes away from OPT, post-completion mm -hmm. OPT. So if a student engages in five months of pre-completion OPT, then they only have seven months of post-completion OPT. So that sometimes, um, they sometimes look at, students will sometimes look at CPT as an alternative option, but pre-completion OPT is there as well too. Okay, and how, how for example, can you apply for OPT? Because I know it's a long process and it does have some things that you have to go through as well. So how does it look? Let's say I just graduated and I want to apply it for OPT, which I believe I'll definitely be doing. So how does that process work for me? Yeah. I will say it's never too early to start thinking about post-completion OPT. Mm -hmm. OPT um, is very different from CPT or internship because it does take a long time. Mm -hmm. OPT needs to go through USCIS or the US government mm -hmm. and they make that final decision and determination. So in your last year of study, I would definitely advise any student to chat with their immigration advisor on campus to talk about what their personal timeline looks like. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes um, friends, students will talk and their timelines might be different. So um, it's so important, just kind of a baseline. It's so important to know that um, a student's immigration record is unique. 
mm-hmm. um, and to always consult with their immigration advisor. But um, I would say plan early okay. and in your very last year, start having those conversations. Mm-hmm. And is there a fee uh, for applying for OPT? Yes, 410. 410. And that's pre-completion, post-completion, STEM OPT extension. It's all $410 at this time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So since we're talking about, yeah, so since we're talking about timelines and you mentioned also the, the STEM mm-hmm. extension. So um, how long usually does OPT last? How long can you work for? What is the STEM mm-hmm. extension? How, how is that helpful? So I think that, that would be really interesting to know. Yeah, these are all great questions. I love practical training. It's such a CPT, OPT, it's such a great benefit of the F1 student visa. So these are some excellent questions that you all are raising. Um, Post-completion OPT, if a student doesn't use pre-completion OPT, it's up to 12 months. So up to one year of post-completion OPT. If a student meets all of the criteria for STEM OPT extension, that is two years right after um, their post-completion OPT, but it could also be used at a later time. But more, it's mostly seen after post-completion OPT, students will go straight into STEM OPT extension. So really looking at up to three years if students meet all of the criteria. Mm-hmm. Do you know the reason? And is there, is there, oh, sorry. No, sorry, Nizar, I, 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 I was just, I was just gonna say, is there like a, a a limit on, for example, like a, like a minimum wage that you need to be earning in order to apply for OPT or, um, or it, it doesn't really matter, you know, what the salary is. And also, uh, I think I heard that in order to apply for OPT, it needs to be like a job related to your degree of, of, mm-hmm. of study. Um, it can't just be any, any random job and, and you can get OPT on, on that job. No, that's exactly correct. And that's one of the biggest pieces about OPT. Any OPT is that must be related to um, your field of study, whatever you earn um, or are pursuing at your current institution. So yes, that is super important. Um, When a student is on post-completion OPT, the most common one that we particularly see in our office, you know, it could be a volunteer position, it could be an unpaid, you know, position, but um, it could also be, an, be a paying position. When students are on STEM OPT extension, that must be a salaried position. Um, so yes, and there's been times and conversations that I've had with students about the salary that they're making, because um, if it's too low and they're in engineering, that's not matching up, right? You've got a master's in engineering, you don't want to be taken advantage of. So it's um, sometimes I'll be having conversations with students just to let them know that um, they're qualified, you know, they got that degree. So be seeking other opportunities. And that's another thing I'll mention too is, um, you know, students can move different employers at any point in time as long as things are being updated, documentation is being updated accordingly. So they're not necessarily married to uh, <laughs> Definitely. And um, just to also touch uh, upon STEM. So what is exactly STEM? What are the majors that consist of STEM fields? And what are some majors that are not STEM? Just so people also know the difference about STEM majors and non-STEM majors. Yeah, that's a really great question. So STEM, 
think of the sciences, biology, technology, IT, engineering, mathematics, statistics. Those are some of the big um, STEM eligible majors Mm -hmm. um, that we see. Um, As far as non-STEM, I would say theaters, art, um, education, nursing. Unfortunately, nursing is one of those that isn't. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, those are just a a few examples. No, a lot of Moroccans that try to study economics and is economics considered as a STEM major? Unfortunately not, that's more of a business. So that would be a a business major. Awesome, yeah, it's just relevant that people know exactly what are like STEM majors, what are not, because as you said, if you wanna get that extension, it has to be within the mathematical or uh, science or maybe even physical um, fields, just so people exactly know what they're, you have to also take in consideration about what you're going to do after you graduate. So you don't want to go, oh, I want to do three years and then end up doing a major that will not give you that extension. So it's important for everyone to know that. So uh, going back to, to the outline, so how has the pandemic really affected the visa process and what are some of the most recent ICE guidance that has been released that people should definitely know and follow uh, while applying during this really unfortunate and weird times. We've never been through something like this before. Yeah, I can jump in and add to that. So right now, the way that COVID-19 has impacted the visa issuance is with embassy closures and delays in visa processing outside of the U.S. So many students, especially students in Morocco, who maybe have been trying to get a visa appointment in the past couple of months, have or um, now down the road for a future semester, likely seeing that appointment dates are either far out into 2022 or are maybe emergency appointment only. So a lot of the embassies have felt that impact because they just have not been able to operate under normal hours with normal staffing. So that's really delayed the visa issuance process. So for many students who are trying to come to the US to study maybe still for this upcoming fall semester or looking at spring of 2022 or fall of 2022, really need to be monitoring the US embassy um, in Morocco or whichever country they may be applying from to see what available dates are open for them to apply for that visa. And just be prepared that it's gonna take extra processing time than it did you know, pre-COVID um, yeah. days. Definitely. But, Uh, In addition to that, with the ICE guidance, then for um, students who were studying in the United States when COVID-19 took effect, so this would be students who are here pre-March 2020, Mm -hmm. um, they were given an exemption through ICE or a guidance, essentially, that allows them to continue taking online courses um, so they can enroll in up to full-time online courses and still maintain their F1 or J1 student status and still receive all of the typical benefits that they normally would. But for any students who came to the U.S. and started their program after March 2020, they actually fall into the normal guidance and normal regulations where they need to maintain a physical presence on campus. They cannot take full online courses they have to have a minimum of either face-to-face or hybrid classes um, in order to maintain that status. So that's one of the biggest impacts of that ICE guidance. Mm-hmm. Nizar, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think, I think that's really important because I know 
I'm sure many universities in the fall are, are coming back um, to regular uh, classes, but I think there are still some universities, especially, you know, for example, here at Stony Brook, I think any class that is bigger than 200 students will, will be online. So definitely this is something very important to, to be careful when you're registering for courses. Maybe it would be useful to maybe talk to an advisor uh, before you register for courses in, in the fall semester to make sure that yeah. you're you know in compliance with, with the with the ICE uh, guidance. Definitely. I feel like the Holt is also doing the same. So actually like by September, they're requiring um, everyone to come back to campus. Uh, but unfortunately, if you didn't get your visa or if you fall, fell in, like, you know, sometimes it can be difficult for you to get an appointment or if you did not get your visa in time, then you will have the right to stay online. But I feel like life is returning back to normal. Classes will be in person again. But as you said, um, it depends again if your country is allowing you to travel or not. So, what if? So I think I think another useful question we can ask yeah. is that you know suppose that uh, I'm a student, I'm coming for the fall, I need my visa, but you know due to COVID nineteen, I wasn't able to get my yeah. visa in time. Um, you know, would it be possible to defer my uh, my um, how, how should I say my registration? for the mm -hmm. semester, maybe by a semester, maybe by a year, how easy it is, is it to do that? Or is it like university dependent? So how would that process look like? Yeah, that's a great question too. And there's a lot of different nuances, I'll say, depending on where the student is in that process. So for the first step the student would essentially need to take is to work with their university or college that they've been accepted to, to defer their admission and to find out how long they can defer that. Mm -hmm. Many universities are allowing students, at least at the undergraduate le level, to defer their admission up to a year. Graduate and PhD students, it might just be one semester, so they'll need to work uh, directly with their graduate program to find out their policy. But because of COVID-19, many institutions are, have become very flexible with that deferral policy. So by deferring the admission, it means that they're just taking their acceptance, moving it to a different semester. They might have to update some documents, with the university to do that formally, but essentially they're still guaranteed admission for that new semester. Um, if a student was accepted and received an I-20, paid their CVIS I-901 fee, but still was not able to get a visa appointment in time, they also need to defer that I-20. So they'll get a new updated I-20 from that university showing their new program start date for the new semester. The CVIS fee payment that Erica mentioned earlier, that $350 activation fee, that can also be deferred up to 12 months. So they don't have to pay that again. Um, so they can, so that is one benefit um, as well. So they don't have to worry about that payment. And then also any of the um, visa fees that students have paid. So there's the DS-160 application, which is the form students have to fill out to schedule their visa interview. There's also a $160 payment to schedule the visa interviews. So lots of little fees here and there to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. So that $160 um, visa appointment fee can also be deferred. So if the student has to cancel their appointment, the um, US Department of State is allowing students to um, defer that payment to a later date so they don't have to repay it again. Okay. Well, at least there is this flexibility that is extremely important with these times. And um, are all, you know, okay, so if you cannot necessarily make it, or let's say you want to start your semester um, on time, 
are most universities staying online? Do you have any ideas about that? Or really like it depends on each university and what they want to do? Yeah, a lot of universities are giving students the option to start their program online from home. Mm -hmm. Of course, understanding that many students are not able to physically come here this next academic year. So Minnesota State Mankato, for example, is allowing students at the undergraduate level to start their program online from home. Okay. Uh, students, of course, should check directly with their university that they've been accepted to to find out what that policy is. Mm -hmm. But because so many universities have these accepted students, they, of course, want to enroll them. They don't want to lose those students. So they're creating opportunities for them to still enroll as students or at least be engaged with the university campus until they can physically come to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yeah. Nizar, do you want to yeah. add about that? Yeah. So I just wanted to, to say, you know, we've talked a lot about maintaining F1 status, the difference between OPT and CPT. Um, you know, having being enrolled full time, then there's the ICE guidance pre March 2020 and post March uh, 2020. But uh, for example, you know, I think a question that comes a lot is, what if I uh, I would back to the U.S. Would it be possible to reactivate uh, the status? And if I lose my phone status, how long do I have before I have to leave the country? Uh, so maybe if we can address, you know, what if a, what if a student loses their F1 status for whatever reason, you know, what, what options do they have of maybe continuing their studies or or reapplying to, to a new university or, or something like that? Yeah, that's a really great question. So as far as losing um, a status, um, like terminated um, status, there's ways that students can regain their F1 status by either staying in the United States and filing a form, Form I-539, um, and working closely with their International Student Center to file this form. Um, so that's one way. It does take a while, but it's a way that a student can still stay in the United States and take classes. The other way a student can regain their F-1 status would be if they left the United States and went through the visa appointment process. The con of that would be, you know, the flight ticket home that comes at an expense as well as paying for the DS-160 that Elizabeth was talking about earlier. But it is a little bit of a quicker process or pre-COVID definitely was a quicker process than um, the reinstatement process. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, to start concluding our conversation, um, what are the most common questions that you guys receive from students that you guys feel like you should definitely address and you keep hearing them a lot and you're sure that students will always keep asking you these same questions? Um, I, oh, so many things come to mind. A couple of things we've, of course, touched on, <laughs> but maybe I'll just uh, reiterate or emphasize Mm -hmm. working in the U.S. This is always a question, especially when, when I'm working with prospective students. Mm -hmm. They just want to know how many hours they can work and what are the regulations. Mm -hmm. My biggest thing that I want to emphasize is never, ever, ever accept a job outside of the university campus without talking with your immigration advisor. This is one of the most common ways that students tend to fall out of status is if they are working without authorization off campus um, that is an instant uh, basis for termination for their status. 
So if you want to work in the United States on your student visa, just make sure that you meet with your international advisor at your university or college um, before accepting a position. Make sure that it meets the regulations so you don't fall out of status. Um, but like Erica was saying, uh, students can work part-time while their classes are in session. So part-time for most states, it sometimes is a state-by-state -state rule instead of immigration rule. Uh, part-time in most states is 20 hours per week for undergraduate students, 14 hours per week for graduate students. It's a little bit different. And then undergraduate students can actually work up to full-time uh, during the summer breaks, like Erica had also mentioned. Um, so that's one of the things that comes to mind right away. I think for me, something that comes to mind right away is like visa expiration, mm -hmm. um, but also passport expiration and I-20 expiration. There are so many dates out there <laughs> that students need to be aware of. Their I-20 program end dates, you know, the um, visa, passport, things like that. Um, I'll just start off by saying, I think it was mentioned earlier, the F-1 visa stamp, its main purpose is for entry and travel. So that can expire in the United States. It's just, um, if you leave on the expired visa, you need to come back with an unexpired visa. Mm -hmm. Passport, a lot of times US embass or embassies um, within the United States will renew passports, which is super great that a student doesn't need to travel outside mm -hmm. to renew an expiring passport and work six months in advance. And then the I-20 expiration mm -hmm. date is so important. Um, it is so important just to always be up to date on these expiration dates. But the thing that gets really tricky and challenging is if an I-20 program end date has passed and then the student lets us know that they still have classes left to take because it gets very hard. And sometimes there's not a lot that we can do with that um, at that point in time. So we need to extend before that expiration date. So dates matter. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, I also received a question uh, from a student who does not know exactly what to have when he first enters the U.S. And also, if he's going back to his country, does he need to have his F1 with him, his I-20? What are the documents that you need when you're traveling back and forth from your country as an F1 student? That's a really good question. So the first document, of course, is the I-20. You, they will stop you at the border <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you do not have this document. So your I-20, your passport, your visa, those are the basics. Mm -hmm. um, I do encourage students to also bring along other essential documents. Uh, if they're a new student entering for the first time, bring the documents with you that you use to apply to the university. It sounds like overkill, but it's better to have everything than not and need it uh, and not than not have it. So have your academic transcripts, test results, such as your TOEFL, IELTS, Duolingo. Um, have your financial documents of how you plan to pay for your education in the United States. So essentially all the documents you bring with you to your visa appointment, carry those with you on the plane. Don't put them in your checked luggage. Make sure they're in your handbag, hand luggage. Um, so you have those right away at the border. And then for current students who might be traveling back home, um, oftentimes the universities will provide currently enrolled student letters mm -hmm. just as extra verification in case the student is either stopped at the port of entry or needs to renew their visa when they go back home. They have that currently enrolled letter showing that the student is making academic progress towards their degree. They've maintained their status. Mm -hmm. um, so students can use that letter of support also with them. 
And they should also plan to carry with them their I-20, passport, visa, et cetera. Uh, and Erica, you can back me up in this too as an international advisor, <laughs> but also one of the most important things um, with uh, current students who are traveling is they need to have an updated travel signature on their I-20 from an international advisor, a DSO, which is designated school official, going back to all the acronyms. <laughs> so the designated school official or DSO does need to physically sign or now can electronically sign um, that I-20, which certifies that the student is maintaining status. So if a student doesn't have that travel signature and they try to leave the U.S. and then come back in, that can cause some problems. Mm -hmm. And what happens if a student loses or, or damages their I-20 such that, you know, it's, it's not going to be accepted by an officer, especially when they're home for the summer and then they start freaking out. Oh, my God, I lost my I-20. I can't go back. School is going to start in, in, a, in a month or so. So um, does the international office send a new version or uh, is it, I, I think now it's COVID-19, maybe it's possible to get it uh, electronically. So how does that process look like? It, it is possible to get it electronically, but pre-COVID-19, I'm sure Erica and myself, we all have our stories, horse, the horror stories of students story. who damaged their I-20, lost their I-20, forgot where it was. I have seen I-20s <laughs> covered with coffee stains. I have seen oh. I-20s that were off. <laughs> I have worked with a student who had her entire backpack stolen when she was on a trip out in California. She lost her laptop, her passport, and her I-20, oh everything. God. So, I mean, we all have these, this happens, life happens, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So do your best to protect that document and all of your essential documents, but we can always replace that for you. So if it's lost, stolen, missing, damaged, um, just let us know right away. We can reprint an updated I-20, provide all the new signatures for you. Mm -hmm. um, and if you happen to be out of state or out of the country, we can send that to you right now electronically. Um, in the future, if, if we're able to continue sending those electronically, which hopefully we can, <laughs> uh, we'll continue to do so. But in the past, what we did is we would just send it through express mail, through DHL right. or FedEx or something. So it got to the student quickly. Makes sense. Well, um, we're reaching on the hour, one hour mark. So um, first of all, I want to thank Elizabeth, Erica, Nizar for, you know, all this valuable insights. We've learned a lot personally, <laughs> even as a host, I've been learning a lot from you guys. And um, I hope that our viewers uh, enjoyed this episode. Um, Rewatch this video, share it, share it to your friends who believe, who are currently going through this process. And uh, once again, thank you guys for this amazing talk and stay tuned for more episodes.